Each time I finish recording one of these podcasts, I think to myself, now the next one I do will pick up right when I moved to Portland in 1993. That's what I think, anyway, until I actually start the next one. It's then I find out that I have a little more I want to say about what happened before that. I think it's because the whole reason I do this podcast is to try and get into the nuts and bolts of why I ever began doing what I do now. This morning I was thinking about the word inspiration. Don't worry, this isn't going to get all weird and new agey. I don't mean inspiration like a sunrise, or having a life coach, or a TED talk, or Oprah's latest book or something. I mean what the inspiration was in my youth that hit me like a bolt from the blue and put me on the path to doing what I do. What was it? I don't know. But I know this. Like pretty much everybody else, I can't tell you exactly what I like, but I can damn sure tell you what I don't like. And like everybody else, I'm happy to. Hi, you don't know me, but I'm Jim Walker, and this is Record. Complaining, bitching, whining, kvetching, all of us are goddamn Olympians at it. And that's where I want to begin today, with the first thing I can ever remember truly pissing me off. It enraged me so much that it filled me with inspiration. Inspiration to work my hardest, to be the absolute polar fucking opposite of Jimmy Osmond. In 1976, when I was 11, television was my entire world. I would watch show after show, didn't much matter what. This was of course pre-cable, VCR, DVD, TiVo, and DVR. You watched what was on. Your choice was a baked potato. During summer vacation, when most kids were out playing or doing something outside, I sat in our gloomy den watching morning reruns of shows that were old even then. I Love Lucy, The Andy Griffith Show, The Monsters, Nanny and the Professor, Love American Style, Mr. Ed, Green Acres, The Flying Nun, Bewitched, Courtship of Eddie's Father, My Favorite Martian, Bonanza, Gomer Pyle, The Addams Family, Gillian's Island, Dragnet, F Troop, Get Smart, Lassie, I Dream of Jeannie, Petticoat Junction, Flipper, McHale's Navy, Perry Mason, My Three Sons, The Beverly Hillbillies, The Dick Van Dyke Show. And that was just the morning. After lunch, I got into all the shows that were on the UHF channel, Channel 52 in LA. That's where you could watch The Little Rascals, The Three Stooges, Laurel and Hardy, and a great, somewhat psychedelic show called The Banana Splits. The evenings were spent plopped in front of the TV with my sister and my parents. My family ate on TV trays, wordlessly watching whatever was on. Fridays and Saturday nights, my whole schedule revolved around what was going to be on television. Saturday morning cartoons were a foregone conclusion, but Friday and Saturday night, you had your variety shows. Knock three times on the ceiling if you want me. Tony Orlando and Don, Sonny and Cher, Carol Burnett Show, Flip Wilson, The Mac Davis Show, Hudson Brothers, and on and on and on and on. Out of all these shows that I so dutifully watched, and I'd watch anything, there was only one I just couldn't stand. The Donnie and Marie show. They were just so revoltingly squeaky clean. So perfect. 
So corny. My mother and sister were the ones who wanted to watch it. I complained and complained, but it fell upon deaf ears. Very deaf ears, because those songs they sang sucked a few fat ones. Donnie and Marie duetting on Puppy Love or One Bad Apple or I'm a Little Bit Country and I'm a Little Bit Rock and Roll actually made me sick to my stomach. But the putrid capper to the Donnie and Marie show, the coup de gras, the showstopper, was their little brother Jimmy, the youngest Osmond. He was my age. This dunderheaded twit became the diamond pinpoint of all of my hate and rage. At some point during each show, and you just knew it was coming, they would trot out Jimmy, the little dicky dweebus. He'd be introduced, the curtains would part. I would like to bring him out! Here he is, Jimmy Osmond! usually be wearing a tight, brightly colored jumpsuit sort of thing with flared out cuffs. He'd be adorned with a puka shell necklace or two. He'd bite his bottom lip like Elvis and hit the stage running. The audience went nuts. Stand and O, baby. Evidently, America thought this little darling was adorable. Gag. Personally, I just wanted to fucking decapitate him. Slowly, like with a red hot letter opener. My family knew how I felt about Jimmy. They thought it was hilarious that I had all this misplaced rage for some goofy TV kid. I think it was one of the highlights of my mother and father's work week to watch me have a friggin' tizzy when Jimmy was on screen. Every New Year's Eve, my mother and father would pack up a bunch of food, grab the sleeping bags and folding chairs, and drag my sister and I to Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena because my mom and dad loved the Rose Parade. They loved it so much, they would actually go down to a place in the world where everybody else was at the time, elbow a bunch of people aside, excuse me, we got kids here, pardon me, stake out a tiny parcel of land, open the ice chest, fire up the Coleman stove, and then stand around all night long in the cold, having had no sleep, just to watch it in the morning, live and in person. Oh, and did I mention public toilets? Woo! To this day, the Rose Parade is the very reason that I don't like crowds and that I absolutely detest parades. My father and I never really had what you'd call any kind of relationship to speak of. Something about the two of us never clicked. We just never liked each other very much. This is not the weepy part of the story where I want you to go boo-hoo, it simply is and to the day he died, what it was. When dad was drinking, he was too mean to be around. When he wasn't drinking, he was too annoyed or busy to be around. He never really took me anywhere. Fishing once, I remember, maybe an Indian guide meeting or two, and we never really did father and son things. But we did have one amazingly great father-son moment. I'll never forget it. And it happened in 1976 at the Rose Parade. It was an hour or so before the parade's downbeat. My dad and I were wandering up and down the route, looking at floats, listening to the marching band's tune-up. The police came down Colorado Boulevard, clearing everyone off the streets and putting up barricades. The crowd was a little restless. People were really ready for this thing to start. 
Suddenly there was the sound of tambourines and people singing from a ways down the block. Some folks in the crowd started pointing and laughing. A group of men and women wearing orange and white robes were coming down the street. They had their heads shaved, except for a little ponytail deal in the back, and they were chanting something. I asked my dad who they were. He told me they were the Hari Krishnas. The Hari Krishnas, Hari Krishnas, were throwing plastic bags out to the crowd. My dad and I each caught one. They were small bags of nuts and raisins. My dad said not to eat it because God only knows where it had been. So I stuck the bag in my pocket, and we walked up the route to meet back with my mom and sister. The parade started, and it had all the honest-to-God excitement of a parade. <laughs> I couldn't wait till the stupid thing was over. After some baton twirlers and some horses went by, a sleek, old-timey convertible came cruising down the boulevard. It was the Grand Marshal of the parade, though I couldn't quite see the Marshal yet. The car came closer, and I read the placard hung there on the side. 1976 Rose Parade Grand Marshal Jimmy Osmond. What? No, no. And I'll be damned. There he was. That cherubic chipmunk. That jolly boy. The ruiner of everything. Jimmy Osmond. My mouth nearly hit the pavement. I looked up at my dad for some kind of explanation. What came out of his mouth truly surprised me. He said, Hey, why don't you throw that bag of peanuts at his head? A light shone down, as if from heaven. Really? I asked. Yeah. Matter of fact, take my bag, too. Aim and throw them right at his head at the same time. More heft that way. My dad handed me his bag. Angel music played. Dad had just earned more respect from me in ten seconds than he had in the last ten years. I placed my father's nut bag in my right hand, along with my other bag. I felt the weight. It felt good. I waited. I felt like Oswald waiting there for Osmond. A few moments later, as the car containing Jimmy passed by, I threw those peanuts as hard as I could. They sailed in slow motion through the air, a real movie moment. And bang! Beamed Jimmy right in the side of his noggin. His head went back and to the left, back and to the left. The crowd didn't turn on me. No Latter-day Saint security team wrestled me to the ground. I wasn't hauled away. All that happened was that Jimmy reached up and felt his head and said, Ow! And the car kept going. A guy in the crowd near me, who'd clearly seen me throw the nut sacks at Jimmy, looked over, gave me a thumbs up and said, Nice shot, kid. And that was the end of that. If that had happened now, somebody would have for sure filmed it with their phone and it would be up on YouTube two minutes later. If that had happened now, I would have gone viral, been the subject of internet scrutiny and the star of copious message boards, some loving me for what I'd done, some hating my guts. If that had happened now, I would have been interviewed by TMZ as my parents and I were walking quickly through an airport trying to get out of town. No matter what I said in the interview, it would have been auto-tuned and remixed by someone. But this was a long time ago. Back then, everything was different. Not better, not worse. But back then, we only had a few channels, and you watched what was on. We ate baked potatoes. This next thing inspired me at least to try to not be an asshole. I'm working on it.
There's this movie called The Decline of Western Civilization II, The Metal Years. Have you seen it? It's a documentary. Highly entertaining. In all, there are three Decline of Western Civilization pictures. The first one is all about early 80s punk rock. The second one is about the L.A. metal scene of the late 80s. The third one is about, I don't know, I saw it and I still don't get it. In Decline of Western Civilization II, The Metal Years, there's an infamous scene, some of you already know where I'm going with this, featuring a man named Chris Holmes from the metal band Wasp. Chris is being interviewed in the backyard of his mother's house. It's night, and Chris is fully clothed and in the swimming pool. His mother is sitting nearby, and Chris is drunk. Wait, did I say drunk? Scratch that. He's annihilated. Bombed. While being interviewed, he's taking pulls off of three different liter bottles of vodka and slurring his words. Go to YouTube and look it up. It's great. Come back after. But, you know, it's Chris Holmes, Decline of Western Civilization interview, something like that. But yeah, come back. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is because Chris grew up in my hometown, La Cunada, California. He lived over there off Vero Road. He was five or six years older than me. When I was about 10, 11 years old, I was walking with a friend of mine down on Foothill Boulevard, the main drag of La Cunada. This is before La Cunada became La Cunada Flintridge. See, growing up, Flintridge was where most of the wealthier folks in town lived. Whereas La Cunada had some of that, but for the most part, La Cunada was middle class. My folks bought their house for $16,000 in 1957, and there wasn't much development to speak of. I'm telling you this because I don't want you to think I came from La Cunada Flintridge. I came from La Cunada. There's a difference. I grew up with a lot of entitled brats from Flintridge. Kids whose parents bought them a brand new BMW or Volkswagen Cabriolet for their 16th birthday. On my 16th birthday, I bought my grandmother's 1967 Chrysler Newport for $200 that I'd been saving up for for three years. God, I love that car. Where do we come in? Where do we come in? This is the same car that the guy from B-52s is singing about in Love Shack when he says, I got me a Chrysler, it's as big as a whale, and it's about to set sail. I got me a car that seats about 20, so hurry up and bring your jukebox money. Big old good car, and safe too. I learned not only how to drive in that car, but I also learned how to crash. I crashed that car four times, once into a wall, twice into fences, and once into a tree. There was no discernible damage on the car any of those times. They built them like that then. But back to being 10 or 11 years old. My friend and I were walking there on Foothill near the McDonald's. It was a hot day in the summer. La Cunada and its next door neighbor Pasadena sit side by side in this basin near the mountains. The basin holds in vicious heat and choking smog. Hot pollution would just sit on your chest, and although you wanted it to, you prayed to holy God for the wind not to blow. You didn't want it to blow, because if it did, some spark somewhere would ignite a wildfire. You've seen those on TV down there. Some guy in Tahunga kickstarts his motorcycle, and two days later the entire San Gabriel mountain range is reduced to charcoal. So, I was 10 or 11, and it was hot. My friend and I were dying of thirst, so we decided to see if we had enough between us to get a Coke at McDonald's. Oh, I just remembered who the friend was. Steve. He was a kid we didn't like very much, but he had a pool table at his house. His father was this fussy, balding, overweight man who walked around the house wearing nothing but a pair of jockey shorts. On more than one occasion, he'd saunter into where we were playing pool and just stand there. We'd try not to notice that there was a fat man five feet away, nude except for his briefs, hands on his hips, lips pursed, slightly sweaty, glaring and breathing a little too hard. 
and I hate to be the one to tell you, but he always seemed to have slightly discernible wood there underneath the worn and stretched cotton of his banana hammock. Nothing weird ever happened, but every guy in my group of friends went out of his way not to get stuck alone in a room with the guy. Steve and I stood there in front of McDonald's counting our change. I had 60 cents. Steve had $1.15. We had enough. We started toward the front door. Suddenly a bigger kid skidded to a stop on his bike right in front of us. Hi girls, give me your money, he said. This was the first time, though not the last, anything like this had happened to me. And I wasn't sure what to do, so I just stood there. Now, give me your money or I'll kick the shit out of you, he said. It didn't seem like there was going to be any negotiating, so I handed the guy my 60 cents. That's all I got. Sorry, I said. Now you, hand over your money, he said to Steve. Steve started shaking. Please, no man, don't take my money. My dad will kill me, Steve said. Even in the midst of our being mugged, the image of Steve's creepy dad giving Steve a beating while wearing those too-much-information grape smugglers nearly made me bust out laughing. Give it, kid, now, said our thief. Then it happened. Steve started crying. Blubbering, really. Please, man, please don't take my money. Christ, this was getting embarrassing. I also made a mental note to start hanging out with bigger guys. Two more kids rode up on their bikes. Did you get their money, Chris? One of them asked. The newly identified Chris walked up to Steve and socked him in the stomach. Steve doubled over and fell on the ground. Give me your money, Chris said. Okay, man, okay, just don't hit me again, please, man, said Steve through his tears. He dug in his pocket and handed Chris a dollar. Chris swiped it out of Steve's hand. You tell anyone about this, you're dead, Chris said. The three thugs got on their bikes and rode away. It was all very stand by me. Steve sat on the ground crying. At least I still have 15 cents. It was in my other pocket. He took it out of his pocket and showed me. I took a dime out of his hand. Hey, give it back, he hollered. I walked over to a payphone in the parking lot, dropped in the dime and called the cops. Hey, I'm generally not a narc, but nobody should get away with that bullshit. The dispatcher must have thought I was joking, but a few minutes later a police car drove into the McDonald's lot. An officer got out. I understand you kids had a little trouble, he said. I told him the story. He stole our money, threatened us, he hit Steve, and his name was Chris. I described him. That's probably Chris Holmes, the cop said. He's one of the worst juvenile delinquents in town. Real troublemaker. If you saw him again, could you identify him? Sure. Let's go for a ride, said the cop, throwing open the back door of the cruiser for us. We drove around La Cunetta's suburbs in the direction the guys went on their bikes. It didn't take long till we saw him riding up ahead of us. That's them, Steve and I said together. The cop got right up behind them, then blasted the siren. They got off their bikes. What? What do we do? Chris said. Then they saw us in the back of the car. That took the air right out of them. The cop let us go and took the three kids to the police station. I have no idea what happened to them after that, but despite Chris's promise to kill us, still I breathe. I only saw Chris Holmes once after that. It was about nine years later. My band was playing a kegger at Kathy Printup's house. Mr. Holmes had gone out into the world and had had some success with his band Wasp. Their record, Fuck Like a Beast, the one where the cover art was the blade of a buzzsaw tearing through the crotch of a codpiece, was riding high on the charts. My band was making our way through our weird set list of surf music, Rush, Pink Floyd, and Steely Dan covers. Huh? When through the door walked the infamous Chris Holmes, drunk off his ass. Everyone was happy to bask in the presence of Chris. 
He was a local bad boy who made it good, and I imagine it was fun for him to be that guy at the moment. Too bad he wasn't going to remember any of it. Chris made his rounds and continued to pound drinks. My band took a break. I set my guitar down, and all of a sudden Chris was in my face. Hey man, can I check out your guitar? He said, not remembering me from the McDonald's incident of yore. Checking out the guitar. This is always a tricky one. Because when you're in a band, and someone says they want to check out your guitar, most of the time, they don't care a lick about your guitar. What they really want to do is show you that they play better than you do, and show off for whoever might be in listening range. I never really minded when someone asked to play my guitar, because I'm not really into guitar playing. I'm into songwriting. I can really care less about the guitar other than to write with. It's a tool. And speaking of tools, I handed Chris my guitar. He started playing, trying. Remember, he was completely hammered after all. These fast riffs, dweedling and doodling and spurting forth some special guitar spoo. I stood there watching, wondering whether or not I was supposed to act interested. Whoops, Chris broke a string. Oh no, oh no, man, he said, shaking his head. I just laughed. No big deal, dude, I've got other strings. No, man, I'm so sorry. I'm such an idiot. I'm so sorry, he said. This was a little weird. He was completely overreacting. He looked up at me, and I'm not kidding, he had tears in his eyes. Clearly, there were other issues going on. Here, man, let me give you some money, he said, reaching into his pants pocket. No, really, it's okay. No, no, I'm an idiot. Here's money. He dropped some bills and change on the rug, then turned and walked out the front door. The guys in my band started cracking up. So did I. I felt kind of sorry for old Chris, but it was still funny. As we put our guitars back on to start the next set, I looked down on the rug at the money Chris had dropped. A ten, a one, three quarters, and a nickel. Eleven dollars and eighty cents. I quickly did the math. One guitar string at the time was about seventy cents. So I still had made a profit of eleven dollars and ten cents. And I got back the sixty cents he stole from me years before, bringing me up to a grand total of eleven dollars and seventy cents in Chris Holmes' profit. I fanned out the money in front of the guys in the band and asked, Well, 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 who fucks like a beast now? They just stared at me, as usual. After the gig, we all went to McDonald's. My treat. Something else that really inspired me early on were midnight movies. Midnight movies. I really believe those two words changed my life. When I was 11 or 12 years old, I saw a lot of movies. A lot of them. But just regular movies. You know, summer blockbusters, goofy comedies, whatever everybody else was seeing. My godfather, Don, a wonderfully warped curmudgeon, used to take me or my sister Barbara, we'd alternate, out on the weekends. Don lived in a different world than most people did. He was an old L.A. jazz DJ who hung around bars and nightclubs in the evenings and spent his days at the track. His friends were musicians, reporters, bookies, mechanics, actors, hookers with hearts of gold, down and outs, private detectives, bartenders, jockeys, butchers, midgets, magicians, cab drivers, painters, you know, the interesting folks people with stories. Being with Don was a lot like being inside a Tom Waits song or a Charles Bukowski short story. You never knew what was going to happen, but something always did, and there were always characters around. We'd drive around L.A. in whatever jalopy Don had acquired that week in whatever mysterious way. Everywhere we went, everybody knew Don, 
and Don knew everybody. I loved my weekends with Don. It was like being with tarnished royalty. He never made me feel like a dumb kid. He treated me like an adult and with respect. In turn, I never acted like a kid around him. I always listened to what he said and respected his word. We went to movies quite often on the weekends, and they were always doozies. By that, I mean it was always a film that kind of spun my young train of thought around, made me perceive the world in a different way. Some of the films even had bad words in them, which I liked a lot. This was the mid-70s, so I was seeing things like The Man Who Fell to Earth, Burnt Offerings, Network, Marathon Man, and lots of Woody Allen films. Don loved those the most. One of the places we'd go to see these movies was the beautiful Rialto Theater in Pasadena. It had seen better times even back then, but to me, it was one of the most gorgeous places I'd ever seen. I have no idea what it's like now, or if it's even still there. I haven't seen a film there in 30 years. Something I really liked about the Rialto were the posters in the lobby. They had the classics, Maltese Falcon, Bridge Over the River Kwai, etc. But they also had some of those glass frames reserved for what were referred to as midnight movies. I was immediately intrigued. Midnight movies? What were those? Hmm. Just the posters alone for these films used to take me to a bizarre place. The big one going at the time was the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It was probably the first full-fledged by God midnight movie, meaning they showed these films at midnight because they were just too bizarre and out of step for prime time. In the Rocky Horror poster, there was this man in makeup, garter belt, and high heels. Wow, what was going on there, I wondered. What kind of weird movie is that? My mind raced. Next to that poster were others. Pink Flamingos, Eraserhead, El Topo, Targets, Night of the Living Dead, Freaks, Harold and Maude, Flesh Gordon, Alice's Restaurant, and many more. Seeing those posters was like catching a glimpse of an invitation to a party I wasn't invited to. It made me mad. I hated being a kid. What a waste of time. I couldn't wait to get older and do stuff. A couple years later, when I was 12 or 13, some of those midnight movies that were playing were rock documentaries or concert films. I knew my mother would have never driven me at midnight to see Pink Flamingos, but I could probably talk her into The Song Remains the Same, which I proceeded to do. My mother, God bless her, hauled me and a crew of my imbecile friends to Pasadena in the dead of night and waited in the car, chain-smoking Pall Mall Golds while we waited inside watching Jimmy Page play his guitar with a violin bow. Thanks, Ma. When we got a little older and could drive ourselves to the pictures, though, that's when it got interesting, when I saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's astounding, time is fleeting, madness takes its toll. Of course, the first time you see it, you're completely left out. The audience knows all the lines, all the inside jokes, and is shouting lines in unison that weren't in the movie. Then they're throwing things at the screen and doing the time warp in the aisles. The first time is rough, but entertaining. Then you go again, and splash, you're swimming in the same strange sea as everyone else. As goofball as it was, with Rocky Horror, I felt like I'd finally found my people. The freaks. The weirdos. The night people. My friends and I would go see it every weekend, until we too were part of all the goings-on. After a little time, I even worked up the courage to shout out a few things of my own. The next week when I showed up, people were saying a few of the lines I made up. Cool, I was a writer. I love this time period, but my friends eventually burned out on Rocky, and they just weren't into it anymore. 
And here's where I discovered I had a problem. I started going alone. There was something I connected to about the movie, aside from all the audience participation and camaraderie. And it was the sex. The movie is chock full of all kinds of sex. You never actually see any of it, but the suggestion of it is pretty much the basis of every scene. There's straight sex, and gay sex, solo sex, group sex, sex with monsters and aliens, sex, sex, sex. Hey, I was 14 and that was about the only thing on my mind anyway. I was in slightly deviant hog heaven. I finally had to stop going because I began to have a Tim Curry problem that confused me for a while. But I got it figured out. I had a David Bowie problem for a while there too, but never mind. Once, my old friend John Purvis and I took in a midnight showing of the concert movie Woodstock. The film was kind of a rarity to see back then. Not that many prints were available, so the fact that it was showing was kind of a big deal. John and I arrived a little before midnight, and the place was absolutely packed. There were very few seats available, but after a little hunting, we found seemingly the only two free seats in the place. In a few moments, we discover why they were free. We squeezed our way down the aisle and sat down. These were good seats, too, about halfway up fairly close to the center aisle. We found out later that this was the third film of the night, the last of a triple feature of rock power. First up had been a film about Jimi Hendrix. Second was Jimmy Plays Berkeley, And third was Woodstock. I looked around at the crowd. I noticed that some of our fellow moviegoers looked a little funny. Some of these folks had been there all the ding-dong day. Some of them were flat-out crocked. Case in point, the chubby fellow who was slumped over, soundly snoring away in the seat just to my right. He was wearing a fog hat baseball cap. It was kind of cute, too, because on the front of the hat, the word fog was printed. Get it? Get it? Anyway, old fog hat had just about had it. The lights dimmed. The film started. I thought I smelled something funny, but I ignored it. If you haven't seen Woodstock, it's great from just a historic and social perspective. A period of time in America springs to life right in front of you. You see the crowds arriving. You see Richie Havens. Hmm. I did smell something funny. I started sniffing around. I asked John if he smelled it. He said he did. It reeked of fruit sweet and acid sour and booze. I had a lighter on me. I fired it up and pointed it toward the floor. Lots of popcorn, stray juji fruits, a few cups, and then, aha! Right underneath old fog hat was a big puddle of puke. Drunken idiot. So what John and I should have done was get up and maybe tell the manager there was a man clearly in trouble in there. That's what we should have done. But instead what we did, being teenagers, was to start throwing milk duds at Foghat's head. We bounced a couple off his noggin. He didn't budge. Then we threw a third one that hit him in the neck. He snapped to attention, looking around to see who was throwing things at him. We quickly looked forward and turned our attention to the film, Innocent as Little Lambs. He put his head back down. We winged another one that spanked him on the cheek. He sat up in his chair, looking around for the culprits. We just stared straight ahead and watched canned heat singing going up the country. Foghat was just about to go back to the land of Sleepy By, but I guess he thought better of it. He got up, grabbed his coat, all mad, and left. John and I laughed our asses off and went back to the picture. Yeah, we sat there with the puke. Who cares? About a half an hour later, guys I can only describe as college dweebs came in. Letterman jackets, perfect hair, expensive shoes, you know the type. Makes you want to slap them just to see the look on their face. They walk down the aisles, squinting in the movie dark, looking for a seat. Come on, fellas. Sit right down. Two right near the aisle with a little something extra there for you. Please, please, please. 
Bingo. Spuddy and Thurston spied the two right next to us. They came on down the aisle with their popcorn and Cokes. Aw, cute. They sat down. John and I could hardly contain our laughter. We just waited. About two minutes after sitting down, just as Spuddy was digging into his popcorn, he cocked his head ever so slightly like the Victrola dog. He then started sniffing the air. He sniffed and sniffed, slowly zeroing in on the source. Wouldn't it have been nice of us to have let these guys know they were sitting with their feet in booze puke? Yes, it would have, but that's not what we did. Spuddy sniffed at the air, then toward the floor. Then he did the unexpected. He reached his hand down, scooped up some with his fingers, and took a big whiff. Then he looked at Thurston and said, Well, I don't know what that is. They both got up and left, leaving John and I rolling in our seats like we'd never laughed before. celluloid granddaddy of them all. The movie that truly popped my eyes from their sockets, galvanized my personality, and made me what I am today, for better or worse, had to be David Lynch's Eraserhead. I remember a day in high school, sitting at a lunch table with my old drummer, Scott. He asked me if I'd seen this movie, Eraserhead. I said no. He then began to explain the entire movie to me, shot for shot, from beginning to end. Basically, he spoiler alerted the whole dang thing for me. But in the case of this film... It only made me want to see it more. When I saw it for the first time, I almost started crying because I felt like it was made just for me. I also felt like I was drowning in new and strange input. The film, if you haven't seen it, is one of the strangest films ever made. A mood and world unto itself. It's stark, dark, industrial, nightmarish, hilarious, revolting, and in so many ways, unbelievably beautiful. I saw it for the first time at the Newark Theater in Santa Monica. I walked out the door afterwards and it was my favorite movie. That was it. It's still my favorite movie. I've never seen a film world so complete in its creation. It's a place I wish I lived in. And since I couldn't, I returned to the theater to be there again and again as often as I could. Eraser had broke down my walls. It made me think differently about life, about family, about responsibilities, the future, interpretations, and mostly about art. What the heck was art anyway? What was it? What could it be? What did it mean? And did it have to mean anything? What was interesting? What was pretentious? And where was the line? My eyes had been opened. Really, finally opened. Midnight movies. Those two words really kind of changed my life. Wait, strike that. I think they saved my life. Another completely different kind of inspiration is the accidental celebrity sighting. I love them. This one's about a particular day in New York. So I looked up from my omelet, and there was Harvey Keitel. Bad lieutenant all up in my grill. That got my attention. Kim and I were in New York having breakfast at Bubby's with some friends. Everyone in our little group, except me, was facing away from the window. I bent down to get a bite of food, and when I looked up, There was old Harvey with his face pressed against the glass, looking inside. Since that was the last thing I expected to see in the world at that moment, I was slightly gobsmacked. He knocked on the window. Bam, bam, bam. 
A voice from behind me said, Oh, there he is now. Hey, hey, Harvey! Harvey squinted through the glass, waved at his friends, and then started inside the restaurant. I said to the others at my table, Wait till you see who's about to walk in and sit right behind us. Who? They all asked. Who is it? Just wait, I said. I have to admit, I love celebrity sightings. They're just so much fun. Like seeing a rare bird out of its cage flying free. When I lived in LA, these sightings happened all the time. So much so that I just became jaded to it all. The famous were everywhere. Years ago, I was in a bookstore in West Hollywood. I picked a magazine up off the rack, and when I went to set it back down, there in front of me were the Bee Gees. All three of them, Barry, Robin, and Maurice Gibb, standing next to me in staggered profile like they were posing out for an album cover. It was so absurd, I actually laughed out loud. I was so close to Barry, I could smell his hair care product. Hollywood, man. But since moving to Portland many years ago, the opportunity to see celebrities wandering around loose are fewer. One time Kim and I were walking around in downtown Portland outside the Schnitzer Concert Hall when the stage door opened and out walked Faye Dunaway. I've seen enough celebs to keep my cool and not freak out, and Kim used to work for the legendary film producer Dino De Laurentiis. Yep, Jada's grandpappy. So she's seen them all. But this was Faye Dunaway. Kim and I took one look at her, and both of us were suddenly pawing at each other, going, Oh my god, look! It's fucking Faye Dunaway! No fucking way! Check her out! Complete dorks. So, back in New York City at Boobies, Harvey walks in and sits down with his friends. Wow, good sighting, Kim said under her breath. That's what we like to call him. Sightings. Really good, said someone else at the table. Who is it? said CP, one of our other table mates, way too loud. I leaned in, and because Harvey was about two feet from me, I quietly whispered, It's Harvey Keitel. Harvey who? said our clueless friend. He was seated between people and received dual elbows in his ribs on both sides to get him to pipe down. Oh, Harvey Keitel, he said, pointing. The rest of us tried to slide down in our seats and disappear under the table. And he continued, digging ever deeper. I see him now, but I think I saw enough of him in the piano. Check, please. The reason we were in New York on that trip to begin with was that we'd been invited to our friend Ivy's wedding. When we received the invite months earlier, I made a regrettable choice, which was now coming back to bite me. I needed a new suit for the wedding. Actually, I needed a suit, like one. I have no grown-up clothes to speak of. It's how God made me. So back to the invite, I told Kim I had an idea. I was going to wait till we got to New York and buy a suit there. It sounded good in theory. But now, here we were, in one of our favorite towns in the world. A place with so much cool stuff to do, you can never pack it all into one trip to start with. And now the wedding's bearing down, and I got no suit. I don't want to schlep all over town looking for a goddamn suit. The whole idea made me sleepy. It was all just too daunting now. What was I thinking with this dumb idea? Where was I supposed to get a suit? Where's the suit store? I don't know anything about clothes. I have no fashion sense. My taste in clothes is horrible. I only have one criteria with clothes. Are they comfortable? When I find something that feels good on my skin, I stock up. That's why I have 15 identical black shirts, 8 pair of blue jeans, 6 black cargo shorts, and 5 pair of identical Chuck Taylors. Actually, there's a method here. 
Einstein had several identical suits made so he wouldn't have to give any thought to his clothes in the morning. He could just take the next one off the rack and use his mind for more productive things. I always liked that idea, so that's what I do. Of course, don't think for a moment I'm comparing myself to Einstein. He applied his identical sets of clothes theory and came up with E equals MC squared. Me, I've shit my pants alive on stage at two separate St. Paddy's Day shows. So what do I know from clothes? Especially pants. This suit thing was now just a pain. Plus, I realized there was no way I was going to trust myself to buy a suit on my own. I needed suit approval. That meant I needed a woman's eye. That meant now I'm dragging Kim into the muck and mire of this project. Luckily, not only did Kim agree to come, she insisted, thankfully. Three other women came along, too. But, and let me preface this by stating my sincere appreciation for all the women involved in trying to pick out my suit because they really tried to help me. These four women made the experience of choosing the suit one of the most confusing, exhausting, mentally draining, and hellish experiences in my life. Men can't shop with women. Again, what the fuck was I thinking? They dragged me all over Soho, store after store, suit after suit, dressing room after dressing room. By the end of it, I didn't know which end was up anymore. I hated everything I tried on. And of course, because it's New York, the prices are completely out of control. But the time was growing nigh. The wedding was the next day I had to make a choice. Finally, the women shopping patrol got tired of my bullshit and indecision. They all bailed, even Kim. I wandered around Lower Manhattan, a man beaten, a man who had surrendered. It was over. I tried one last store, Emporio Armani. Sure. I walked in, and there it was. A pistachio-colored suit, very similar in style to what the Beatles wore on the Ed Sullivan show really cool. I tried it on, and it fit. I was shocked. It needed just a little hemming, but I'd found my suit. I found my suit. I brought Kim back to the store, received the suit approval, paid for it, 1100 fucking dollars, and off we went to meet up with the rest of our gang and have dinner. On a whim, we went over to Nobu, where we figured we didn't have a snowball's chance of getting a table, but decided to try anyway. We entered through the back entrance. As we were walking in, Chef Nobu himself was walking out, and he held the door for us. Famous chef sighting. We walked inside, and the first person I saw at a table was Jackie Chan. Legendary action comedy star sighting. They didn't have a table available, but they thought they could squeeze us in shortly at their annex restaurant, Nobu Next Door. While the reservations were all being dealt with, I walked back outside. Suddenly, there was a giant boom. A manhole cover came sailing off the street and hit the pole of a traffic light so hard it ripped the whole thing out of the ground. The manhole cover and the traffic light both came crashing to the pavement. It was really something. It was astonishing no one was killed. The fire department arrived in minutes. Cops started putting up do not cross tape all over the street. I heard a voice say, Hey, how am I supposed to get home? I looked over and there was one of my favorite actors, Eric Bogazian. He starred in the Oliver Stone movie Talk Radio. He was standing just outside the police tape holding two big bags of groceries. Obscure character actor sighting. You gotta go around the block, Charlie, said the cop. Ah, shit, said Eric, sauntering off, pissed. Our table at Nobu was gonna be a while, so we decided to walk down the block to the Tribeca Grill and have a drink. We sat at the bar. Kim was the first one to notice Diana Krall sitting a few tables away. Jazz Shantou sighting. Oh, but wait. Where there's a Diana Krall, there just might be a... Yes. The trademark black frame glasses were all I could see. But after a few moments, one of my heroes, Mr. Diana Krall, Elvis Costello, got up to use the restroom. 
Jim's favorite songwriter ever sighting. This to me was the sighting. Couldn't do better than Elvis. No way, no how. I'm going to follow him, said CP, our friend who had earlier embarrassed us beyond description with Harvey Keitel. No, said everybody, but off he went. He returned a few minutes later. It was then reported to us by CP that Elvis had used the stall, but had not washed his hands afterwards. Ooh, little stinky smell, Viscosmello. P.U. Still, my sighting was complete. Elvis. Yes. I picked up my suit the next day just before the wedding. It fit perfectly. We got ready at the hotel, and off we went. It was one of those muggy summer days with the humidity and all. Not my weather. Really not my weather. Hot town, summer in the city. Back of my neck, getting dirt and gritty. We walked over to the synagogue and went inside. Damn, no air conditioning. I began to sweat. As my sweat began to commingle with my new suit, I had a new sensation. The feeling that my skin was being choked. Nothing was breathing. It felt like I was wearing rubber. I looked around at the others, but I seemed to be the only one who was this miserable. No one else was even perspiring. I looked like I hit the shower, then put my clothes on without toweling off. Kim looked at me. What's wrong with you? Why are you sweating? Oh my God, I think I'm dying, I said, not kidding. The wedding was mercifully brief. I was nearly knocking over the old ladies to get out of there and gulp some moving air. We went to the bride and groom's apartment over in the meatpacking district for the reception. I climbed the stairs to their place, sweating and swearing. And their apartment turned out to be even hotter than the outside. One small window unit air conditioner chugged away at the far end of the hall, doing absolutely nothing. I went into the bathroom and took off my suit jacket. My shirt was soaked through to the skin. Pit stains, back sweat, the whole classy shooting match. I put the suit jacket back on and buttoned it. I walked back out to the party, still sopping. Kim said, just take your jacket off if you're so hot. No, I said, I'm fine. Take it off. Don't be a dumbass, she said. Others joined in. Take it off. Jim, take the jacket off. You feel better. What are you doing? Take the jacket off. But I couldn't. I was too ashamed of my disgusting soaked shirt. Never mind, I said. Leave me alone. A couple hours later, the party began to wind down. I was sweating like never before. Someone suggested going to dinner at Gigino's, an Italian place in Tribeca. I'd never been there, but the others were all excited about it, so off we went. The only thing I was excited about was the restaurant's AC. This place had to have it, right? Had to. Day like today, so hot and humid, of course they would. No. Return to me. The restaurant was hotter than the apartment. Two barely moving ceiling fans did nothing but welcome you to the restaurant with the gift of hot, moist air. Oh my God, I was starting to swoon. I began to have a panic attack, heart racing, hard to breathe. I had to get out of these clothes, like, like right that instant. In my heat haze, my eyes darted around the restaurant, this place I'd never been to before. It looked really familiar. I knew I'd positively never been there, but I recognized everything. The tables, the bar, the decor, everything. I figured I was nuts from the heat, but no, wait. I did know this place. I knew this place down to the last detail. I knew without being told the restrooms were downstairs to the right. I knew there was a payphone to the right of the men's room doors. I knew the men's room had green and white tile. I knew what the kitchen looked like. I knew where the back kitchen door was. I poured sweat. I felt like I was coming apart. Like my mind was actually drifting away from me, becoming more and more distant, like a kite on a string. 
I'll be right back, I said. Where are you going? Kim asked. I'll be back, I said and walked out the front door and hailed a cab. I went back to the hotel and tore off the offending suit. I looked at the label. All polyester and rayon. Polyester and rayon don't breathe. No wonder I thought I was dying. I changed into my street clothes and cabbed it on back to the restaurant. Everyone was pissed that I'd just up and left. One woman I barely knew was yelling at me, telling me I was an idiot. I didn't care. Fuck you, New York lady. I was comfortable for the first time in hours. I sat back and drank to my comfort. But still, this familiar restaurant. What the hell was going on? I knew this place. I knew it. How? I went downstairs to the right. There was the payphone. I went in the men's room. There they were, the green and white tiles. I knew what was around every corner. I felt sick. I headed back upstairs to the dining room. And that was when I noticed on the stairwell wall a framed poster for a movie called Dinner Rush, starring Danny Aiello. Boom! Eureka! That was it. Dinner Rush is a strange little indie film that takes place in a restaurant over the course of an evening. It's one of my favorite movies. There's a love story, gangsters, food, revenge. It's great. Turns out the whole movie was filmed in this restaurant. No sets or anything, just the restaurant. That's why I knew the place so well. I've seen that movie ten times. Whew, I wasn't mental after all. Just then, I realized that this restaurant was not only the location, but also the star of one of my favorite films. So really, I just had the biggest sighting of the trip so far. This building. A celebrity so big, it not only starred in its own film, but also had its own kitchen in John. So, there it was. A sighting bigger than Elvis. Elvis, upstaged and left behind by a restaurant. The building had just left Elvis. Author's note. Upon returning to Portland, the suit was placed in a garment bag and never worn again. Sometimes, just being a dumb kid can be its own form of inspiration. During the summer, when I was a kid living in Southern California, and when finances would cooperate with my parents, they'd rent a house for a couple weeks in Newport Beach. These were some of the best times in my life as a little kid. But when I got into my teens, the beach trips were less of a novelty and more like two grueling weeks with my parents. I didn't want to hang out with those old idiots. I had all these cool teenage things to do now, and the folks just didn't fit into my plans. Mom and Dad, sensing my teen angst, began to allow my sister and I to invite one friend apiece with us on the trip. At least it would keep us busy all day and out of their hair so they could relax in peace. Since we had the house for two weeks, one week I'd invite my friend Dave, and the next week I'd invite my friend John. And those were great times. But then, as I began to become a rotten teenage egg, I started inviting my more dubious pothead friends. I remember on one of those vacations, John Purvis and I smoked an entire ounce of Humboldt County Harsh, plus a couple of tie sticks within the week he was there. We'd hit the bong, then body surf the entire day away. I was so baked I barely remember any of it. I do remember laughing a lot. I think I was about 14. In recent years, I asked my parents if they had any inkling about how absolutely fried I was 60-75% to 75% of the time. They said they didn't have a clue. My mom said had she known, she would have been really disappointed. Lucky me.
Aside from body surfing, another thing we'd do while ripped halfway out of our skulls was to take a stroll down to the Balboa Fun Zone, which was about a half hour walk away. We play pinball and ride the cheesy rides and all that. One night, it was kind of late and we were kind of stoned and we decided to hit the fun zone. By the time we got there, the concessions and rides were already closed up. Sad and red-eyed, we turned to leave, but noticed that one ride seemed to still be operating. The bumper cars. Well, that's what we came for anyway. We ran up and got in line behind the four people waiting in front of us. The operator said, Hey kids, we're closed. Scram. Well, we countered and pleaded with them that we'd walked for a half an hour to get there and found everything closed, and now we had to walk a half hour back for nothing, and couldn't he just see us to let us go on this one ride, please? He sighed and chewed on his cigar. He rolled his eyes. All right, one ride, then you're out of here. Deal? Deal. We went to get into our little cars, and that's when we noticed the other four people who were also strapping in. Well, we noticed only one of them, actually. It was Robert Wagner. People know him now as Number Two, the guy with the eye patch from the Austin Powers films. But back then, he was just this lame, schmaltzy, blow-dried, fake-ass TV leading man type who was on this ridiculous show about a husband and wife detective team called Heart to Heart. And here he was now, in the flesh, with a woman and a couple of kids. And he was all dressed up in a nice blue blazer, just like on TV. And that was funny, because we were really high. Side note, if you're looking to put this into some kind of Hollywood history time frame, this was after his marriage to Natalie Wood, but before Natalie Wood's death by drowning. What's the only kind of wood that doesn't float? <laughs> hey, fuck you, I didn't make it up. So there we sat in our bumper cars, revving the engines. I said to Purvis, Dude, look, it's that guy from TV. John said, I know. Let's fuck with him. The operator fired up the cars. John and I floored ours and crashed right into old Bob, sending him careening off a stack of tires. He looked up with a slightly nervous smile and said, <laughs> Good one, guys. And that's when we hit him again, both of us on each side. Bam. All right, that's enough, he said while spinning in a circle from being whacked from the front and back simultaneously. Then we pinned him in a corner and slammed him and slammed him and slammed him again. John and I were laughing so hard it hurt. All right, goddammit, knock it off, he screamed at us with the veins sticking out on his forehead. His normally perfect quaff was hanging into his face, and his eyes were positively murderous. He began struggling, trying to get out of his teensy car. I assumed so he could kill us. He was trying to get that belt thing off, tearing at it frantically with both hands. That's when we decided it was time to make ourselves scarce. We slid our cars to a stop, slipped from under the belts, didn't think of that, did you, Mr. Joe Hollywood, and ran for our lives. The operator tried to head us off at the pass while screaming, Damn kids! But we hopped the fence, and brother, we were out of there. Being an older man now, I feel it's my grown-up responsibility to acknowledge what I've done and to apologize publicly for putting Mr. Wagner through that. So, I'm sorry, number two. That was really uncalled for. And if I had it to do all over again, I'd do it in a heart-to-heart beat. Sometimes, inspiration can come from the simple act of sitting down for a meal. My dad turned 80 yesterday. Quite a milestone. Really amazing considering all the health trouble he's been having. You'd never know it to look at him now, though. He's getting around pretty good. Three months ago, the guy was in a hospital bed, hooked up to everything they had, totally incapacitated from a stroke. Couldn't move, couldn't speak. Now he's here at his house, walking around just fine, and talking, and talking, and talking. Matter of fact, this son of a bitch has been talking nonstop since I showed up yesterday. 
I can hardly think because he won't stop flapping the lips of his cake hole. The only reason I'm able to squeeze out these few sentences here is because he's gone to take a shower. Last night, he wanted to go out to dinner for his birthday. Great. I'm thinking maybe a little Italian joint, something nice. It's slim pickings around here in his small town, but there are a few places that might not make my guts go herbly burbly. Sadly, he wanted to go to this place right down the street. A Mexican place. A place that was here years before he and my mom moved here, but a place he never went to until a couple of weeks ago. Now he wants to eat there all the time. Something different, he said. He used that same phrase when Kim and I took him to Europe a few years ago. We were in Tuscany, in a small family-owned hotel, eating the most fantastic food, drinking the most incredible wine. How do you like it, Dad? Something different, he said without looking up from his plate. Money well spent. Anyway, this Mexican place we went to last night, I've eaten there before. During the time my dad's been on his extended hospital stays, I don't think there's a place I haven't eaten in this one hors d'oeuvre town. But just for a moment, let me back up and say, ooh, I love me some Mexican food. I was raised on Mexican food. My mother was half Mexican, half Basque. Her father was a chef. This woman knew how to cook up some by God Mexican food. So I know Mexican food, okay? But this place Pops and I ate last night, it made me all sorrowful-like. It was weak. Tasteless food, dry beans, soggy rice. Not exactly a horrible, really, but there are a few much more edible places around town. The other thing about this dump we ate at is that you have to order at the front counter. Can I go on record right now and say I fucking hate that? I go to a restaurant to sit on my ass and be served, bitch. And to pay for the privilege, goddammit. It's one of the things I love about me as I'm getting older. That I have no problem whatsoever with paying someone to do something I don't want to do. Here's money. You do this. Cook and serve me food. Now. Also, I have a problem with someone calling out a number when they want me. Which they did at this shithole the old man took me to. Number 34? Number 34? Oh, that's me. A number. I'm just a number. I don't care for that. Also, and maybe I'm just whining now, but watching my father eat has never been a pleasant experience. Last night, he had the cheese and the hamburger enchiladas. So did his shirt and a good portion of his windbreaker. I watched this man, my dad, a grown person, lift food up and insert it into his mouth. Then as much as I wanted to turn away, frightened, I looked on as every forkful of his Mexicano mixture retained a 9 to 14 inch stubborn strand of stringy melted cheese that just refused to leave his mouth. I watched this clinging cheese, mortified. There was no attempt whatsoever on my father's part to bite down and break this length of goo before chewing. No, he just simply put the food in his mouth and let the stuff dangle off his lips and chin. After a few bites, he looked like Fu Manchu. Hey, messy Marvin, I said. You have shit hanging off your face. With the back of his hand, he wiped at the cheese, spreading part of it onto his cheek, some onto his shirt, and the remainder onto the sleeve of his jacket. For those of you feeling a little bad for my dad at this point, like I might be beating him up too much, and thinking that maybe this all might be residual effects of his stroke, let me assure you, after knowing this man my whole life, the stroke actually improved his abysmal table manners. He's a disgusting pig. After any meal, the rim around his water glass looks like someone had attempted to salt a margarita glass with cream cheese. It's completely appalling. This place we ate at last night was, however, a step above the other Mexican place my dad and I usually frequent when I'm in town. The night before my dad went into the hospital back in October, we ate at this other spot. 
Up until this October night, this other spot was my favorite Mexican joint in town. And guess what? It should be great, for God's sake. I think if you have a Mexican restaurant and your state also borders Mexico, but somehow you can't seem to get Mexican food together, then you're doing something wrong. But that's just me. So back at this other place, my dad and I were digging into our food and throwing a few margaritas back, don't you know, when out of the corner of my eye, I saw something dart under a table near us. I turned my head toward the movement and stared hard at the spot. What are you looking at? My dad asked. I wasn't sure. Suddenly, a big gray rat ran out from a hole in the booth and started greedily filling its mouth with chip remnants off the floor. Then it sat upright on its haunches and ate the chips with its sharp rat claws. Buat! I yelled at my dad, my mouth full of tostada. Huh? He said, craning his head around to see, but in the wrong direction. I pointed. He turned to look, and wouldn't you know it, the thing jumped back into the hole in the booth. I don't see anything, he said, turning back to his meal, which was, of course, the exact moment the rat jumped back out of the hole and started in on the chips again. Jesus Christ, Bill! I was desperately pointing again. Of course, the second my dad turned, whip, right back into the hole. It's in the hole! I explained through beans. Dad didn't bother turning around again, he just ate. And every 30 seconds or so, for the next several minutes, the rat would dive bomb the chips, then slip back into his booth hole. I just sat staring, riveted. I occasionally shuddered, but I couldn't eat another bite. My dad, on the other hand, finished his entire meal, appetite intact. He's always been that way. Nothing's gonna wreck his supper. I think my dad could be in Pakistan, searching through the ruins of a building for survivors after a 9.4 earthquake two weeks after the fact, and still not only be eating a sandwich with his free hand, but asking if anyone had ketchup. I motioned the waitress over to our table. I was trying to be subtle. I waved her in close, and when she got right next to me, I said to her, Look, I don't want to freak anybody out, but there's a rat over there under that table. He keeps jumping in and out of a hole, eating stuff off the floor. I looked at her, waiting for a response. Oh, good, she said. I cocked my head. Not really what I was expecting. Pardon? I said. Well, the storeroom's right underneath the dining room. I'm sure that's where he came from. I looked at her. I don't get it. Good? I said. Oh, well, my husband's an exterminator, and he's been out of work for a couple of months. Maybe I can get him a job. She was radiating pure joy as she skipped off, I'm assuming, to dial her lovey bubs with the good news. Me? When I get home, I'm going to start at page one of The Joy of Cooking and never leave the fucking house again. <laughs>